This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Our guest, Melanie Linsky, is nominated for an Emmy for Best Actress in a Drama Series for her performance in the Showtime series Yellow Jackets. She spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado about the show and her career. Melanie Linsky fans are happy she's finally getting the recognition she deserves for her leading role in the critically acclaimed and cult fan favorite Yellow Jackets. After her first movie, Heavenly Creatures, in 1994, she starred in so many film and TV shows, including Up in the Air, Sweet Home Alabama, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, Don't Look Up, Togetherness, and Mrs. America. In Yellow Jackets, she plays Shauna, one of the survivors of a 1996 plane crash. She was a member of a high school soccer team on their way to the national championships when the plane crashes and the survivors have to spend over a year in the Canadian wilderness. Viewers slowly learn all the terrible things that the survivors had to do to stay alive. The show goes back and forth, showing the teenagers before and after the crash, as well as in 2021, when the few remaining survivors try to carry on with their lives while still living with the memories of the crash and the aftermath. Here's a scene from the first episode of Yellow Jackets. It's the present day, and Melanie Linsky's character is married with a teenager and living in the same New Jersey town where she grew up. She's at home when a woman claiming to be a reporter approaches her, wanting to tell her story. The reporter is played by Rika Sharma. I know what you want to hear, but the truth is, the plane crashed. A bunch of my friends died, and the rest of us starved and scavenged and prayed for 19 months till they finally found us. And that's the end of the story. I think we both know there's a bit more to it than that. I can't imagine what you guys went through out there. Nobody can. And that is worth something. It's worth a lot, actually. I can guarantee you a seven-figure book advance right here, right now. We could write it together, but it's your name on the cover. Not interested. Sorry. What if I told you the others were? Then I would say that you're lying. So you are still in touch. I haven't spoken to any of them in years. I would not know how to get hold of them, even if I wanted to. I moved on, and I genuinely hope that they were able to do the same. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm... Shauna, this is the kind of money that could change your life. You were an elite athlete. Straight A's. Early admission of Brown. Is this really how you thought your life was going to turn out? Sorry. I didn't mean to, uh... I don't give a what you meant, you smug little bitch. You don't know a thing about my life. Melanie Linsky, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. And congrats on the Emmy nomination and all of the much-deserved acclaim. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a very um, surprising time. (laughs) The show is about, among other things, friendships between teenage girls, particularly friendships that are pretty toxic. Uh, Was that something that appealed to you or a theme you like to explore? Because you have a lot of, like, flawed 
like, toxic relationships in your work. <laughs> yeah, I guess I do. That's so funny. I mean, it's always more fun to play because there's just so much there when there's drama and there's hurt feelings and upset. I myself, I'm still friends with pretty much everyone I was friends with as a teenager, so I don't really relate. Personally, my female friends are the most important people in my world, but I do think it's, I, I love the storytelling and I love how complex it is in the show. Also, when I was reading the pilot, I just thought, oh, these all feel like fully developed people. None of them are sort of stereotypes. It's not like the brainy one, the slutty one. It's They're all interesting people who contain multitudes. And that was kind of rare for me to see in the writing of a group of teenage girls. Yeah, there's an interesting story about what inspired the show creators to make this series about a group of teenage girls surviving a plane crash. And it has to do with a rumored remake of Lord of the Flies. Is that true? I think so. I've heard them tell the story at a panel where they were reading the comments like on Deadline or something where people were like, oh, you can never do an all-female Lord of the Flies because what are they going to do, compromise to death? You know, <laughs> like all these things about women, these about women not being vicious, women not being violent, uh, not being willing to do what it takes to survive and Ashley who's one of the show creators was like well these people have never met a teenage girl and then they got inspired to to tell this particular story. Shauna the character you play is very vividly like every day dealing with decisions that she made as a teenager you know the feelings she had the relationships she forged do you relate to that you know I will say that sometimes I still feel like very connected to the awkward teenager I was. Like I can still access her. Like do you relate to kind of what Sean is going through that way? Yes, very much. I feel the same. I think if you've ever been shy, if you've ever <laughs> been awkward, it's almost impossible to stop feeling that way. I still have a thing when I'm at work, you know, and I have to eat lunch with a group of people, I still get heart-pounding anxiety about what table do I sit at? Who's going <laughs> to reject me? Because as a kid, I didn't, you know, we moved around a lot when I was really little and I didn't have friends and I just never had a group of people I could sit with at lunch. <laughs> so I think maybe that's why when, once I did make friends, I was like, you're with me for life. <laughs> We're never <laughs> splitting up. I was obsessively loyal. But yeah, Shauna is really, she has a lot of survivor's guilt I think, about making it out of that situation, not feeling like an especially good person, but having survived and feeling very guilty about that. So that's an interesting thing to play. You were born and raised in New Zealand. Can you tell us about where you grew up and what it was like? I grew up in a town called New Plymouth in a province called Taranaki. It's on the west coast of the North Island, and it's kind of provincial, I guess I would say. It's a very beautiful place. There's a volcano and there's black sand beaches. It's now quite a like vibrant little community. When I was growing up, it wasn't quite as great as it is now. When did you realize you wanted to be an actor? When I was really little, like six, 
I was so painfully shy. I could not hold a conversation. I I was just so shy. And I remember I did this thing that was completely out of character for me and I auditioned for a play. I just had this feeling. And I didn't get a very big part in the play. But as I was doing it, my couple of little lines, I felt this freedom. I felt this lightness. (laughs) And I just was like, oh my gosh, I don't have to be me in these moments. I can just do whatever I want. I can be free. I'm in another person's body. I'm speaking as another person. And I got kind of addicted to it. And then I just did everything. I did plays at church. I did plays at school. I did local theater. And then when I was a teenager, I started to say, well, that's what I want to do for a living. And people just thought it was crazy. It's not really a job, (laughs) you know. It was really not um, seen as being like a, a viable career. Your first big acting role was in the 1994 film, Heavenly Creatures. Uh, It was directed by Peter Jackson, you know, Lord of the Rings, the Beatles movie, Get Back, Peter Jackson. Um, It was an early film of his. And you co-star with Kate Winslet, and it was her first big movie, too. Uh, It's about two girls in the 1950s who are best friends, who fall in love and end up murdering your character's mother. It's based on a true story. I want to play a quick scene. Um, At this point in the movie, the two girls are about to be separated because Kate Um, Winslet's character is moving abroad, leaving with members of her family. The girls want to stay together, even though they're just teenagers, and they're trying to find ways to do this. And in this scene, your character is arguing with her mother. And we also hear your character's voiceover. Um, And the actual voiceovers were all pulled from the real girl, the real Pauline's diaries. Let's take a listen. The Humes will look after me. They want me to live with them. Don't be so ridiculous. You're our daughter. You belong here with us. I belong with Deborah. We're going to South Africa. You're not going anywhere. You're 15 years old, Yvonne. You have to let me go. We'll talk about this when you've calmed down. I felt thoroughly depressed and even quite seriously considered committing suicide. Life seemed so much not worth the living. Death such an easy way out. Love, you can still write to each other. Anger against mother boiled up inside me. As it is she who was one of the main obstacles in my path. Suddenly a means of ridding myself of this obstacle occurred to me. If she were to die. That's a scene from Heavenly Creatures. How did you get the part in this film? That is so strange to hear that. <laughs> it's been so, so long. long. <laughs> I just sound like a baby. Um, I they, they came to my high school. There was just one day somebody said, oh, some people are here auditioning for a movie. And I thought, oh, this is a good thing to put on my application to drama school to say I auditioned for a movie, so I have that experience. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, But they were taking people two at a time into a spare room at the school, and they didn't want to show anyone a script or anything like that, so they just had us improvise. 
and I was with my friend Susie, Susie Schwer, and we just improvised a few scenes together. And we, at the time, were in a dramatic improv class that we did every single Friday night. So we were used to it. It was, you know, kind of second nature for us. And we were so excited afterwards. <laughs> it was so much fun. And we couldn't go back to school. So we, like, took off for the rest of the afternoon and went and sat in the cemetery that was next to the school. And I remember Susie saying, you got that movie. They're going to give you that part. And I was like, don't be crazy. <laughs> it's not how it works. It's a movie, you know. And she said, no, I could tell by how they were looking at you. Um, and then I had to do another very long audition. I got flown to Christchurch where they were filming. Peter showed me Kate Winslet's audition tape <laughs> and said, this is how good you have to be. There's a professional actress from England who we found, and she's this good. And I said, all right, let me give it a try. And I did another audition and I got the job. It was really a, a very, very lucky thing to have happen. I like that you um, went to a cemetery after, yeah. <laughs> after auditioning. <laughs> <Yeah>. Very fitting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's interesting that your career started with this. You know, we didn't call it toxic friendship back then, but you know, it was this toxic friendship between teenagers that leads to murder. And I remember seeing this movie at the time and loving it because it was about these girls. It was dark. You know, it was a different take on an adolescent girl story. Um, what was it like making this movie that was pretty dark? You know, it's creepy. It's not dark is kind of the right word, particularly at such a young age as a young teen. I wasn't a very light teenager. I was quite sort of depressed a lot of the time. I was, um, there was a lot going on in my life and my head. So it was actually an incredible experience to get to go to work and learn how to channel my actual emotions into acting and kind of free yourself from them it can be very cathartic going through things in a performance and I mean to be working with somebody like Peter Jackson who I understood at the time was a great director he's so meticulous you know some takes we would do 25 times and the learning I got to do they gave me a free day where I got to learn how to hit a mark, how to not look at the camera, how to find your light, you know, things, just technical things. And what a gift. Like, it just took all the nervousness away when we did get into the acting part of it. They had a coach on set for me who was tremendously helpful in helping me access the emotion and then at the end of the day let go of it so I didn't go home and just cry my eyes out all night. It was very... um I just feel so fortunate to have had that experience. It was pretty incredible. Well, what happened after you made the movie? Was it hard to go back to normal life? Or did you want to keep acting? I, I did. I, I really wanted to keep acting. And I think I understand what everybody was doing, but everybody around me, the you know people making the movie were very, very worried that I would, you know, 
suddenly be like, this is my life now. And they knew it wouldn't be easy for me. It was 1993 when we made the film. And I was kind of a chubby, shy New Zealand girl. (laughs) You know, there's just not roles out there for someone. Well, at that time, there there was nothing for someone who looked like me. And they were really nervous. They were nervous that they had ruined my life. And I just remember over and over again, like, I would be so excited. <laughs> We'd finish a scene and I would be so filled with joy and they'd be like, uh-oh, she's got the bug. And I was like, well, yes, I do. This is all I've ever wanted to do. So <laughs> it was hard, but I didn't really have, you know, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have anybody wanting to represent me. So it's not like I had other options. I just went back to high school and finished high school. Yeah, I could understand, like, people who made the film, it's like they they put you through, like, a great experience, but, like, with this heavy material and then showed you kind of this way of life. And then <laughs> I could understand how they'd be protective of you and not want you to get hurt. Yeah, they just were like, oh, God, please don't let us be the ones who lead her into a life of misery. And I don't know what else they were thinking. But at the same time, you know, Kate was already professional actress she lived by herself in London she was working steadily and so for her it was more of a stepping stone it was her first movie and she's beautiful and she's English and you know she was started getting scripts like before the movie had come out she got a very high-powered agent and it was a it was a really really different experience and I think I understood that because I I was in awe of her for the whole production and understood I was not at that level and I had not done the work that she had done. But at the same time, it's hard to have nothing, you know, have everybody be like, good job, and now, you know, return to normal and then see somebody just, like, take off in the way that she did. It was a strange mixture of, like, pride an excitement for her and then kind of shame. Like I felt like if I was prettier, if I was better, if I, any number of things, I just thought like, I wish I had what it took to also be in that position. A few years later, or maybe it was many years later, you moved to LA to become an actress. You've talked about how rough it can be to be a young actor. What was tough about it? for you like you worked throughout but what was most difficult it was difficult hearing all the things that you weren't (laughs) and it would change from job to job you know oh they're looking for somebody who's skinnier You, you know in the 90s and the early 2000s nobody had any issues telling you what was wrong with you physically um and that wasn't very fun (laughs) and then it was mostly a feeling of being appraised and falling short again and again that I didn't like. And then some of the stuff I was going out for was just not challenging, not interesting. Some of the stuff my agents were asking me to go and audition for was like outright offensive, like the fat friend, you know, I was like, I'm not going to do that part. I hate that this part exists. You know, you got to stop sending me <laughs> scripts where there's a lonely girl eating a chocolate bar on the outskirts of the group. Like, I don't, 
I think it's kind of evil. So there was a lot of that kind of thing that I didn't like. We're listening to the conversation Fresh Air's Henry Baldonado recorded with Melanie Linsky. She's nominated for Best Actress in a Drama Series for her performance in the Showtime series Yellow Jackets. We'll hear more of the interview after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to our interview with actor Melanie Linsky. She won the 2022 Critics' Choice Award for Best Actress in a Drama Series for her role on the show Yellow Jackets. She's now nominated for an Emmy for that performance. It's her first Emmy nomination, but she's been a critic and fan favorite since her first movie, the 1994 Peter Jackson film Heavenly Creatures. Her other films and TV shows include Up in the Air, The Informant, Togetherness, Don't Look Up, and Mrs. America. She spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. In 2003, you were cast as a regular on a sitcom, Two and a Half Men. And this was a pretty classic sitcom, you know, starring, it was a CBS sitcom starring Charlie Sheen and John Cryer. You play the neighbor who has a thing for Charlie Sheen's character. And she would always just climb up the balcony into Charlie's house. Um, I want to play a scene from the show. Um, One of the times, this might be, it may have been quite a while since you heard this. (laughs) But um, one of the times that you pop in. Marco! Not now, Rose. Marco. Rose, I'm not in the mood. Marco. Polo. Hey, Charlie. Hey. Something wrong? I'm not sure. Rose, do you think I'm a misogynist? Oh, wow, yeah. Why? Did somebody say you weren't? Marco. How can I be a misogynist? My whole life is a testament to my love for women. Oh, it's sweet that you think that. But what you call love is really just an obsession to control and dominate based on mistrust and hostility. Yeah, so? That's a scene from Two and a Half Men. (laughs) How did you get the role? I have no memory of being any part of that. That's so strange. (laughs) Well, how did you get the role in this show? I had just gotten my green card, and so I was able to go out on pilot season. So I was like, great, I'll go out for pilot season, and... Oh, and just to fill listeners in, pilot season means you try out for new shows that are being produced. It used to be for back um, in the fall, like when all new shows used to start on networks. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for clarifying. Oh, no. But go on. Yeah, so <laughs> I I was just going out for everything. Um, I really needed a job. And I got the script for this sitcom, and it was just a guest star. So it would just be the pilot. And I just thought that kind of seems like an interesting challenge to do a sitcom, like a studio audience sitcom. What a crazy idea. And I read the script and a voice came into my head. I just sort of felt like I had that character and I was like, let's just see what happens. And then once the show was picked up, they asked me to be a regular. And I was a regular for two years And then I asked to 
leave the show and they didn't want me to leave the show. So we renegotiated so that I could be like a recurring person, which means they call me and say, are you free on such and such date? Do you want to come and do two episodes? And I would say yes or no. So it really allowed me to do other work. And it was the way I was able to build an independent film career because I had this income coming in. So I knew that I was covered financially, like my needs were being taken care of. And then I just got to do other work. I'm very, very grateful that they they let me do that. You've done so many great movies, but you've often played the wife or the friend, not the lead. I will say that, you know, these women that you play, they're not one-dimensional. Like, even if they're a wife or a mother, there's always something else going on. You know, like the suburban mom in yellow jackets, you know. There's always something more going on underneath. And I think that's something you bring to your roles. But is it also something that you look for, that you're you're attracted to those kind of characters? Yeah, very much. You know, I guess like in Don't Look Up, I was technically the wife, you know, the wife who gets cheated on. But I really felt like there was a lot to the relationship that my character and Leo's character had. And there was a lot to the history. And we got to do a lot of really fun scenes together. So I think on the page, if you read the character description, you'd be like, huh. But then the actual performance of it and the role itself was was very, very fun. So, yeah, I I am drawn to things that um, have more to them than just sort of a surface level. Well, you mentioned Don't Look Up, which is the Adam McKay movie that came out, I guess, at the end of last year. And Leonardo DiCaprio's character is a scientist who realizes that there's um, a meteor or is it a meteor? Yeah, that's what it's called. <laughs> a big rock that's going to hit Earth and destroy it. And he's trying to warn everyone. And um, he becomes very uh, popular. Like he's on television all the time talking about it, even though no one's listening to him. And he ends up having an affair with Kate Blanchett's character. And you play his like, wife. Like who wouldn't? <laughs> it's Kate well, Blanchett. I don't know. <laughs> But I would. <laughs> you and you play his wife who supported him this whole time, um, even when he's kind of gone off the deep end, sort of being uh, kind of lured in by being famous. Um, and I want to play a scene from Don't Look Up where uh, your character confronts Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Blanchett's character um, sort of coming back to a hotel room. You're confronting them about their affair. Oh my God, June, what, what uh, what are you doing here, sweetie? Had a feeling something was going on, and well, you know, we're we're discussing important business. I mean, that's what we're doing. Oh yeah, yeah, it's really very important. Oh, can we just skip past this part, please? You know, where you get to feel self-righteous and we put our tails between our legs. It is just so boring. Oh, it's so boring. You want to skip the part where where you feel bad for my husband? Oh, no, I don't, I don't feel bad. Randall and I are having a wonderful time. So I think the question is, do we keep having a wonderful time? Or does he go back with you to Wisconsin? Or Montana? Michigan? Michigan. You, you know, um, she is actually right. That's the only question. 
So. Well, June, sweetie. Sometimes in life things are, you know, they're they're complicated and oh. they just. Oh, okay. Oh, that was fast. Um. Well, before I go, um, let me just give you some instructions on how to take care of Randall. Uh, yeah, here's the Xanax he takes for his panic attacks. Oh, gosh. Here's the Zoloft he takes for the crashing depressions. Not so much recently, okay? You know. Oh, oh, good for you. Great. Uh, this is for his blood pressure. Ow. Restless legs. That's a God. fun one. Oh, appetite suppressant to counteract the weight gain from his other meds. And uh, for America's sexiest scientist, a bottle of damn Cialis. Ow! Gosh. That's a scene from Don't Look Up. Can you talk about doing this scene? And sort of like, you know, that that character ends up being, you know, she sort of stands up for herself and, and uh, against, you know, this her husband who's completely done her wrong. I, I loved that scene. Um... I just, I remember when I read the script, I was like, oh, this is so great. And it's, I think, how a lot of people feel when they've been in long-term relationships and the other person just kind of, like, takes off. It's like, oh, my goodness, the work that I have done to keep you happy, to keep you healthy. I just love that, you know, she's throwing all these different medications at him and saying, like, hey, this one's for this issue, this one's for that issue. Um, and... Kate Blanchett is just so kind of blasé about the whole thing. <laughs> it's very funny. Um, the scene itself was absolutely terrifying. It was my first day. And I was literally thanking God that Kate was there because I had worked with her before on Mrs. America, a TV show that we did um, that was nine episodes, I think. So every episode of that I worked with Kate. And I knew that she was kind and warm and welcoming and fun and I was just excited to see her again. If I had not had that, if I didn't know Kate Blanchett and I was going into that scene with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Blanchett and Adam McKay, I, I was already so nervous. Um, so Kate really came through and was very kind and lovely. Leo was great, as it turns out. And I had never met Leo before that day, so it was very strange to be... Throwing like, pills nice at him? to meet you, and now we're going to break up. <laughs> yeah. I remember Adam was directing over like a loudspeaker and he was like, really try to hit him, really try to hit him. <laughs> I was like, I, it's Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't want to hurt his face. I don't, you know, like, it's the most famous face in the world. But he was very like, also game for being hit. Like, he was very up for it. So it was a very, very nerve wracking day that ended up being a lot of fun. My guest is actor Melanie Linsky. She won the 2022 Critics' Choice Award for Best Actress in a Drama Series for her role in the show Yellow Jackets. She's also nominated for an Emmy for that role. Her films and TV shows include Heavenly Creatures, Up in the Air, Don't Look Up, Togetherness, Mrs. America, and Candy. We'll talk more after break. This is Fresh Air. You've spoken before about having an eating disorder that started when you were younger, but it must be so difficult dealing with that, you know, just in regular life, but then having to deal with it as an actress, you know, coming up, you know, having 
you know, sort of public scrutiny must be must have been so difficult when you were younger. Yeah. And honestly, everybody I knew was struggling (laughs) at the time. It was a very common thing Uh, in Hollywood. People having eating disorders. Nobody was ever thin enough. I just it was very frustrating. I was working as hard as I could to be as thin as I could. I was eating 800 calories a day never anything over, writing down everything I ate. If I did eat anything over that, I would throw it up. Very restrictive. Um, First of all, that's horrible for your body. It's horrible for your brain. It's horrible for your metabolism. (laughs) You know, now as a woman in her mid-40s, cursing that person (laughs) who made those choices with empathy. Like, I understand why why I felt the way I did about myself. Um, But it was very hard to be literally starving and still being told it's not enough it's not enough you're not thin enough I remember I went to audition for something um and they told me I didn't have the right clothes you know the note from my first audition was you know she needs to look sexier so somebody who was working on the production took me to a costume designer who was working on a big show at the time and they said oh there's all these characters on the show and you can just pick something out and I couldn't fit anything and I was like a small size four I was really small and I couldn't fit anything they were everything was a zero and it just was like wow this is how tiny people are and I don't think people watching television really understand how little most people are like people would meet me in real life and be like you lost so much weight what happened and I would have to say i I didn't. I think I just look bigger on your TV screen because I'm standing next to people who are very, very thin. Um, but that just happened to me constantly where people thought that I had, in between the time they'd seen me on whatever show and the time they were seeing me in person, that I'd lost like 50 pounds. Um, and it was, it's weird. It's weird to get feedback on your body when you're really struggling. And it's been a very long road of making peace with it and trying to feel okay you know it's a journey that I'm still on there are still days where I wish I looked different but you know having a daughter now I think it makes it a lot easier for me to model positivity try to be positive around her and try to not ever criticize myself in front of her or say anything I don't think she's heard the word fat you know do you feel like it's changed at all, you know, in the last 20 plus years as far as how auditioning works or how actresses are perceived? I definitely think it's changed. I really do. I think there's still a long ways to go in some respects. Like, you know, I remember at that time, like in the early 2000s, it was hard for me. There was not a lot of stuff that I was quote-unquote right for because of how I looked but you know I've known Gabrielle Union for a very long time and to look at how much harder it was for her a beautiful successful incredible actress just because she was black you know it was 10 times harder there was so much less material she wanted to do independent films and there's nothing in the world of independent films or there was not at that time and I I just always had an awareness of, like, the difficulty for me 
is like at this end of the scale and for women of colour it's like exponentially worse. So I do think in that regard there's still like a very, very long way to go in creating like true diversity and true equality where everybody feels represented, everybody gets to do interesting material. But it also has come a long way. Like I do feel like casts are a lot more diverse than they used to be. And I feel like women who are older, you know, your mid-40s, when I was starting out, like, that felt like the end of a career. There were so few people who were working past that point, and now there are TV shows and movies that are centred around women in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and there's an audience for them. And, you know, like, the creators of my show are excited about me being an averagely sized woman. Nobody's pressuring me to look a different way. They're excited about it. And that's something that I did not think would ever be possible. Do you ever sort of feel protective or, you know, sort of worry about what happens to female actors, particularly at a young age? Yes, I very much do. And, you know, on Yellow Jackets, the cast is half made up of young actors, actors in their early 20s. And I really let them know, like, I'm here for you if you need anything at all. If you ever, ever need me, if you're nervous to talk about something, I'll do it for you, I'll do it with you, you know, just whatever you need. And I really was kind of astonished to find out that they have a lot more agency than I did at that age than any of us did. All the older actors were talking about it, how incredible it is that they're so strong and capable of taking care of themselves and speaking up for themselves and having a voice in a way that I didn't feel was encouraged when I was a young actor. And it really made me feel great. Like, I'm happy that they knew I was there if they needed me, but they were very um, capable And it just made me feel like things must be different now. Like, I think people are treated with a lot more respect and allowed to have more of a voice. Melanie Linsky, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. This was so wonderful. Melanie Linsky is nominated for an Emmy for Best Actress in a Drama Series for her role on the Showtime series Yellow Jackets. Production on season two begins this month. She spoke with Fresh Airs and Marie Boldenado. The second season of Reservation Dogs has begun. It's about four Native American teenagers. Our critic at large, John Powers, will tell us why he thinks it's a great series after a short break. This is Fresh Air. The second season of the Peabody Award-winning comedy series Reservation Dogs has begun. The show focuses on four young Native American teenagers who live in rural Oklahoma. Our critic at large, John Power, says, It's a great show that's unlike anything else on TV. We all want to tell our own stories, not have them told by people who don't understand us or take our lives seriously. This is the fate that Native Americans have had to endure for countless decades. So when Reservation Dogs came out last year, the series was rightly hailed as groundbreaking. With a cast, production crew, and primary creator, Sterling Harjo, who were all indigenous, it offered a view from the inside of lives that are usually ignored. As Reservation Dogs begins its strong second season, it's worth emphasizing that the series is also one of the best and most original shows on TV. 
Set in Oklahoma's Native American territory, it blends dumb jokes, smart jokes, satire, pathos, social realism, magical realism, and tribal lore, not to mention American Indians' tragic history, into a series that is fresh, funny, and heartfelt. As you may know, the series centers on a gang of four teenagers known as Res Dogs. There's Bear, played by emo-faced DeFaro Wunatai, who longs for the father who abandoned his family. There's soulful Alora, that's Devery Jacobs, who's the group's true center of gravity. There's the foul-mouthed Willie Jack, played by Paulina Alexis, and the affable one known as Cheese, that's Lane Factor, who gets along with everyone. They are surrounded by grown-ups who range from Uncle Brownie, a one-time barfighter who's now a hermit, to a kookily benign cop named Officer Big, played by Zahn McLarnon, the star of AMC Plus's terrific Navajo mystery series, Dark Winds. In season one, this gang of four was busy accumulating money, sometimes illegally, in order to leave the reservation and get to California. But their plans get flattened when a tornado hits town, and only Alora heads out, along with one of the gang's enemies, the tough, deadpan Jackie. As season two begins, these young women are trying to get out of Oklahoma in their ramshackle car. While back home, Bear looks for work, as Willie Jack and Cheese seek a way to rescind a black magic curse that backfired. Here, the depressed Bear receives a visitation from a goofy spirit, a bare-chested warrior who is supposedly at Little Bighorn. I'll check you later. Are you serious? No, come on, come on, man. You will literally invade my life whenever it's convenient for you, man. And as soon as I'm seeking help, you just bail? Okay, um, you got your, uh, your sacred curlies in, right? My what? Your sacred hairs, your man mesh, your nest of creation, your he muff, she muff, they muff down there. See, a long time ago, when our sacred hairs came in like that, it meant that we weren't children no more and that we started working for the people. You, you're acting like a kid, man. We all had a job, we all had a role. That's how we built strong nations, like each a stitch in the great loincloth of the people. I don't even know what that means, man. I don't even know what it means, man. I'm just making up as I go along, all right? Now, I always get nervous when a series I love enters season two, and I feared the worst when episode one tilted a bit too sharply toward the comic whimsy that is sometimes its failing. But the show quickly regained its balance, and began doing what makes it special. Working in a loose indie film style, Harjo and company build around moments, not plot points, and avoid the temptation to make a grand statement about the situation of American Indians. They use their young hero's daily life to offer glimpses, some silly, some profoundly moving, of a modern Native American reality that goes beyond the familiar narrative of victimization and misery. Although they live with poverty and fractured families, the show's characters are vibrantly alive. And there are episodes, like Cheese doing a ride-around with Officer Big, Willie Jack hunting with her dad, or Bear learning to become a roofer, that glow with a warmth and wisdom rare on television. I can think of no other show that gives a clearer sense of what it means to live in a community that feels like a community. Reservation Dogs evokes a culture in which age-old tribal curses exist alongside discussions of gender pronouns, and the legacy of Crazy Horse sits side-by-side side with hip-hop and references to Star Wars. The show is wise up enough to laugh at classic tropes, like the stoic and taciturn Indian, and to make light of the notion of spirit guides, as in the clip we heard earlier. Yet these are jokes from the inside. 
even as the show has fun with Native American tradition, it finds a way of doing it honor, as in this season's beautiful episode when everyone comes together in a death watch for Elora's grandmother. Back in season one, Willie Jack gets to talking about all the seemingly uncontrolled dogs running the streets. Nobody cares about res dogs, she says, referring as much to herself and her friends as to their four-footed namesakes. But she's wrong. This show cares, and I suspect it will make you care, too. John Powers reviewed the return of Reservation Dogs on Hulu. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, my guest will be Washington Post political columnist Dana Milbank. In his new book, The Destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party, he looks at some of the key people and events over the past 25 years that led to today's Republican Party, with some elected leaders, candidates, and officials still endorsing the lie that Trump won, pushing conspiracy theories, and exploiting racism. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne Donato, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. Mm-hmm.